The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, everyone. Thank you once again for allowing me to preach the Word of God to you. And Let's go to him in prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark as to who you are, but you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, we pray that as we dive into this portion of your scripture, that, uh, that we will hear from you, that you, will, that you won't hear my opinions or my thoughts, but that we will hear what you have to say, what you have to say to us, because you love us and you want us to know about you. So, Father, please be with us, fill us with your spirit, and we just pray that, um, just pray for your blessings upon us. It's in your name we pray, amen. We're uh, continuing our journey through the gospel according to Mark, and Phil is correct, it is a fast-moving, fast-paced book. I do say it's the gospel according to Mark because it is God's gospel, not Mark's gospel. And we've seen how Mark is getting at three all-important questions. These are relevant questions we all must ponder. We must talk about them and discuss them. We must come up with satisfactory answers to these three questions. And Mark, throughout his gospel, or the gospel that he's presenting to us, proceeds to answer these three questions. Who is Jesus? Secondly, what did Jesus come to do? And thirdly, how do we respond to him? So far, Mark has shown us who Jesus is. Very first verse of this, of this book says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now Mark wastes no time to proclaim Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. Who is also the Son of God? Now, Messiah means anointed one. He was the expected king in the line of David. He is the one who would deliver and restore Israel. He was the one who would come back and make all things new again. And God's promise, and God had promised the messenger would appear prior to that Messiah and that messenger was John the Baptist. So after 400 years of silence from God, God sent his messenger, and the messenger being John the Baptist. So what did John proclaim? Well, he called people to get ready for the Messiah. He said, God is coming. He's going to pay us a visit. And he also said to the people that they're not ready. He said, you're not ready for the king, for the Messiah to appear. So there is an urgency to John's message. He's saying, hurry up, he's coming. God, get ready. And he said they needed to be cleansed from their sins. In other words, they needed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And multitudes heard his call, and they got baptized. And then Jesus appears. He appears before John the Baptist. And then Mark reports this glorious and 
Trinitarian, beautiful scene where the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit appear as Jesus represents us in baptism. He was a righteous one. He didn't need to be baptized for himself, but he, he represented us in baptism. And then this moment that comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and God the Father proclaims, you are my beloved son, of you I am well pleased. And from there we see how Jesus is whisked away into the wilderness to represent us there in temptation. Because we all get tempted, right? Well, Jesus represented us in temptation. It was withstanding every temptation Satan has to offer. So who is Jesus? Mark shows us that Jesus is God's promised divine king. Now this morning, Mark shows us the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But before the ministry of Jesus begins, John the Baptist gets arrested. And Mark is showing that Jesus' ministry did not begin until after the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Mark suggests that Jesus was being restrained from his ministry by God until John was arrested, or until John was removed. And Mark doesn't go into detail here about the arrest of John the Baptist. It is not important at this point. But what is important is that John's arrest indicates that his ministry has come to an end. He has fulfilled his calling. And now it's time for Jesus to begin his ministry. And it's in Galilee where Jesus begins. So let's take a look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and what Jesus emphasized. As we look, we'll notice three aspects to Jesus' ministry. Number one, Jesus was continually proclaiming that God's promised gospel has now come. Number two, Jesus emphasized the appropriate response to the urgency of the gospel. And number three, Jesus calls his disciples to a lifestyle of allegiance. And as a bonus, we look what does all this mean for us? So again, Jesus is always proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus emphasized the appropriate response to the urgency of the gospel. Third, Jesus calls his disciples to the lifestyle of allegiance. And then we look to see what does this mean for us. So first of all, Jesus is always proclaiming the gospel of God. But let's take a look. What does gospel mean? Gospel literally means good news. But it's actually bigger, deeper than that. I mean, the English word good just doesn't quite describe it. It's more like momentous news. Uh, this news or gospel is an historical event which introduces a new situation for the world. It's the good news of the fulfillment of God's promises. Let's take a look at this promise in Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 11. And in verse 6, it says, o voice, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All field is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. Verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And let's stop here. Here we see the power of the king's word. Look at the frailty and weakness of man compared to God's word. All, all people like grass, it withers away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It survived 
centuries of doubt and disbelief, of ever-changing philosophies, of critics, of persecutions, yet here we are today reading God's word. The word of the king is powerful and enduring. All things will fade away, but our God and his word are forever. Pick it up in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice of strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. There's our word, the gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Stop here. Behold your God. The Lord is coming. Go to the mountains and cry out, the Lord is coming. It's a call to evangelism. Look at him. Behold him. Don't miss him. Be sure to see him. Let the people know. Our king comes with might, for he is a mighty king. He's the mightiest of the mighty. Behold him. Proclaim him. Wraps it up in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather his lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This terrifying God tenderly and gently cares for his people. God loves to identify himself as a shepherd. Have you notice that? Throughout God's word, we see how God works as a shepherd. And here we see the kindness of the king to his people. He, he, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will show special care for his lambs. He will show loving kindness to his people. God is keeping his promises and has come as king. Where's the thunder and lightning? Where are the evil armies? Instead, he arrives as a humble man, teaching and nurturing his people. He arrives as a shepherd, and this is Jesus. In God's word, we see that Jesus has three great titles regarding his work as a shepherd. You find it in John 10, 11 through 15, he is called the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, 30, he is called the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, 4, he is called the chief shepherd. We need this king. We need him desperately. And now, this king is here. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise that he would come. God, in the flesh, has arrived. He is the promised divine king. He is the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah, has come. God has visited this fallen world as he has promised. Therefore, everything has and must change. This humble man, Jesus, he is the king. In later weeks, we will see his awesome authority. But as Jesus enters into Galilee, he is preaching himself as the promised king. He's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And this message is the beginning of the gospel, God's gospel. But Mark is, you know, in Mark 14 and 15, 1, 14 and 15, he, he is summarizing Jesus' ministry. 
Okay, don't think for a second that Jesus came in there sound like a broken record, just repeating this phrase over and over again. Because hopefully, hopefully we've all read the Gospels, we've seen the teachings of Jesus, we've seen the wisdom of Jesus. He, he was never at a loss for words. And Mark is simply summarizing Jesus' teaching. And Jesus was constantly proclaiming that God's promised gospel has now come. It says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what does it mean by the time is fulfilled? Well, Jesus is saying that a very significant time in history has arrived. Um, and, this, and this time in history has arrived at our sovereign God's appointed time. The kingdom of God is arriving, and time of all of history up to this moment has been prepared by the omnipotent, omnipresent creator of the universe who created and stands outside time and space. The moment Israel was waiting for was here, and the time of waiting for the kingdom of God was over. Jesus wasn't saying that the kingdom of God was near time-wise. He wasn't saying it's coming soon. It'll be here any minute now. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the kingdom was at hand physically. The kingdom was here because the king was here. And the king was here in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, people are confronted by the kingdom of God in its nearness. And it should go without saying that Jesus ought to be king of your life. Your motives, your mind, your goals, your values should all be formed based on the fact that Jesus is king. And if he is not your king, why not? Why not? Because Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is not some advice giver. He's not your co-pilot. He is a king. He is the king of all kings. And you are here for him. Jesus was always proclaiming the gospel. Therefore, a faithful response to the gospel is crucial. And Jesus emphasized the appropriate response to the urgency of the gospel. And what is that response? Repent and believe in the gospel. Once again, there is a sense of urgency in the call to repent and believe. We saw the urgency with John the Baptist, and now we see it with Jesus. When, the times, when Jesus said the time is fulfilled, the Greek word he used was kairos. Kairos. And kairos is a fixed and definite point in time. It is the time when things are brought to a crisis. And this is an appointed time in the purpose of God. By God's sovereign decision, the decisive moment had arrived. The moment the king arrived is a moment of profound crisis. And crisis in this context means judgment. How so? Well, as we proceed through Mark's gospel, we will see that those that receive the king, those that receive Jesus as king, will receive eternal life. Those that do not will pass into God's judgment. God's reign is at hand. Pay attention. Don't miss this. Your life is at stake. Jesus is saying, your crisis is right now. And if Jesus is not your king, why not? 
What are you serving that's better? It's time to repent and believe the gospel. But what is repentance? What does that even mean? Some people tend to think of repentance as feeling guilty. One dictionary inadequately defines it as feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. But repentance is not moral reform. Nor is it weeping over your sin. Remember, Judas is carried. He wept bitterly over his sin for betraying Jesus. And some say it's a change of mind. And while there is a change of mind, it may start in the mind. It's not just a change of mind. It's a change of mind, will, and affection. It's a change of life, your, your whole life, not part of your life, your whole life. It's a change of whole life. It's a turning of your life to a new direction. A turning of your affections away from things that will perish. And Jesus calls to repentance was a call to a confession of sin and turning away from sin. Turn away from the attitudes that impacted one's life and one's life's actions and, and choices. Turn away from false kings and idols and other gospels in your life. Turn away from one way of thinking and living to a different way. Confess your sins and turn away from them. And once you respond to the urgency of the gospel by, gospel by repenting, you must then believe in the gospel. Now, to believe is to be convinced something is true. It means to trust it, to have faith. But the object of our belief is crucial. Because once you turn from the wrong things, it's important that you then turn to the right thing, right? Therefore, it's imperative to turn to believe the gospel. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Trust yourself to Jesus. Trust his goodness and his forgiveness. Trust him with your future. Trust him to take care of your past. We all have a past. We all have things we'd rather not remember. But trust him to take care of that. And the, the appropriate response, therefore, is to repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. And all, although repentance and belief are separate, they are inseparable. They're inseparable. No true faith can exist without true repentance. Some try to have faith without repentance. You can't. You're deceiving yourself. We cannot embrace both Christ and evil that is his enemy. You cannot embrace the one whose beauty is holiness while sin remains the supreme love of one's heart. Saving faith includes turning from the love of darkness to the love of life, light. From the love of sin to the love of holiness. And by the same token, no true repentance can exist without true faith. Some try to have repentance without faith. Well, you may cast off your old habits. Without faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world... You'd just be a self-righteous person as lost as you were when you engaged in them. And no repentance is worth having which is not perfectly consistent with faith in Christ. You'll end up getting crushed. You cannot have saving faith unless you have saving repentance. You cannot have saving, saving repentance unless you have saving faith. 
No one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance, without fleeing from sin and putting their trust and believing in Jesus Christ. Believing in Christ alone. As you repent and turn to the gospel, you see God in a different light. You see a different attitude towards him. You have different attitudes towards sin. You begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. You see how truly beautiful and wonderful he is. Have faith in Jesus. We see in Hebrews 11:6 it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Once again, there's an urgency to the message. Time is short. Time is short. Here, here we are in December already. It seems like yesterday we were eagerly awaiting to see what this year would bring, and here we are wondering what next year is going to bring, right? Where did the time go? Where does it go? And tomorrow, tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. The king is here. He's telling you to repent and believe. Even sitting here today, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through this book. The time is always now. Why would you tell him no? Why would you tell the king to wait? What is keeping you from him that is better than him? Maybe your heart is soft now. Are you going to harden it again when you leave here? Please don't. Please don't. Repent and believe today. And then keep on, keep on repenting. Keep on believing. Repenting and believing happens every day of the Christian's life in Christ. You must continually repent and believe. It is our Christian duty. This is what Jesus preached. He preached the gospel of himself as king, calling for a response of repentance and belief to the urgency of the message. And then Jesus calls his disciples to a lifestyle of obedience. Look what Jesus does. Mark 1, 16-20, he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew. So he sees the brothers Simon and Andrew. He goes a little further, he saw brothers James and John. It is interesting that Jesus picks his disciples. This was unusual in the ancient Jewish world. The rabbis never picked their disciples. Instead, if you want to be a disciple of a rabbi, you had to, you had to, have, you had to apply to study, to study under them. And then you had to pass an examination before you could be a disciple of a rabbi. But Jesus is different. He went out. He saw he picked out his students. Yes, Jesus saw all the other people out there. That's true. But he saw his people. He saw them and he called them. And he was inviting them to be his students. Jesus, God chooses his people that he will save. If you are his, because he sees you, and he has, or he will call you, it will change your heart to the point that you'll be not able to resist. If you have put your faith in Christ, this is why, because he saw you and chose you. 
Paul references this idea in 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24, where he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Those who are called see the beauty of having Jesus as the king, and they respond. So how did the disciples respond? When Jesus said, follow me, there's again, that word urgency. There's an urgency that Jesus is called to follow him. Okay, so they suddenly, they leave everything and follow him. They just drop it right there. Their nets are fishermen, they drop their nets, whatever. They drop them and they follow Jesus. Now you have to realize that these disciples were fishermen by trade. This was their business. James and John especially, they had boats and servants, so they were probably upper middle class men. And yet they left it all to follow Jesus. Now this does not mean that they abandoned their families irresponsibly. Being with him does not mean that any of these disciples ever abandoned their families. They certainly never abandoned their families. Christ has never yet asked anyone to forsake his wife and children to preach the gospel. He does tell us all, ministers and otherwise, that the kingdom of God must come before all else. In 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul writes, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Following Jesus does not absolve one of their family's, family responsibilities. However, they have a new allegiance. They're going to follow Jesus. They're going to be with Jesus, learn from Jesus, be like Jesus, because he is their king. And they follow him. And as they follow him, Jesus includes them in what he's doing. You know, they will hear his teaching. They'll watch him heal the sick watch him cast out demons, watch him battle religious leaders, and he will tell them ahead of time what he's going to do. And they will become fishers of men. Fishers of men, meaning that they're going to be persuading people to repent and believe in the gospel and have Jesus as their king. Repentance and belief is shown by a lifestyle of allegiance to Jesus. So what does all this mean for us? Well, it means we need to see and believe the full gospel. See, so far in Mark, we have not seen the full gospel. At this point, the good news is that God kept his promises and visited us. He visited us as a humble, and and yet later we'll see a powerful and authoritative Jesus. And we saw the answer to the first question, who is Jesus? He is the promised divine king. Now the second question, what did Jesus come to do? Let's take a look at Mark 10, 32-34. I'm sure it'll be a few months we'll, we'll get, to, get to this chapter. And Mark writes, As they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Here it is. He's letting them in on what's going to happen. Saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. 
and deliver him over to Galilee, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. What happens? After three days, he will rise. Here is an example of Jesus including his disciples and what he was doing. He purposefully went to Jerusalem to be arrested and persecuted and condemned to die. But it doesn't end there, does it? What will happen after three days? He will rise from the dead. And what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to live and die and rise again from the dead. Now the gospel becomes clearer and fuller. And Paul makes it even clearer in his letter to the Romans. You see in Romans 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which, again, here we go, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, which is Jesus, who was ascended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. God saw them and then called them. And the full gospel shows us how the promised king sees and calls his people. It shows how he came to live, die, and rise from the dead for, for us. He never once, we have never once loved or worshipped God as he deserves. We have rebelled and sinned against him. But through the life of Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, the righteousness of his life has been given to us as a gift by faith. God the Father will look upon us if you have received, if you repented and believe the gospel, God the Father looks upon us and sees the righteousness of Christ. The substitution of his death earns our forgiveness. Jesus dying on the cross in our place as our substitute, taking all of our sins upon him, past, present, and future sins, including the sins we're doing right now, his dying on the cross earns our forgiveness of sin. His resurrection vindicated his victory over sin and death. Because Jesus rose, we also will rise. So how do we respond? Jesus calls people to make a radical decision. Jesus himself becomes the condition by which one enters the kingdom of God or exclude themselves from it. If you are not a Christian, make today the day of your salvation. The time is always now. Repent and believe. What is stopping you? What could possibly be better than being a child of the king? Perhaps you think you're not good enough. Don't worry, you're not. No one is. No one is, including me. No one is. Perhaps you think you're too great a sinner to be forgiven. 
Don't underestimate the power of God. That thought is a lie from the pit of hell. The Holy Spirit never taught a person their sins were too great to be forgiven. If that is your thought, get rid of it. Repent from it. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you're not a Christian, I implore you today, by the power of the Spirit of grace, confess your sins to God, repent of your sins, and turn to Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do not neglect such a great salvation. I can say this with all confidence. If you call upon the Lord today with a repentant and believing heart, you will not be disappointed. Turn to the one who calls you. If you are a Christian, keep repenting and keep believing. These are commandments from God. It's your Christian, daily Christian duty. When, not if, but when you stumble and fall, confess your sins, keep repenting, keep believing. If in your thoughts you believe that our obedience causes God to love us more, or your disobedience causes God to love you less, or you haven't done enough, those two are lies from the pit of hell. The Holy Spirit never taught these things. Get rid of those thoughts. Repent from them. Remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Keep repenting. Keep believing and trusting Jesus and what he has done. And then have a lifestyle of allegiance. Disciples left their livelihood. That does not necessarily mean you have to leave your job. It could. There, you find plenty of disciples in the Bible that uh, that did not leave their job and continued with their work. But it does mean doing your job for Jesus' sake. Perform your duties with his character and values. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what are the ingredients of a lifestyle of allegiance to Jesus? Well, first of all, we're going to trust the true gospel. You're going to confess your sins. You'll love one another in local church. Yes, it's imperative that you belong to a local church. And you live in obedience to God's commands. And let's not forget reading God's word and praying. These are the ingredients for a lifestyle of allegiance to Jesus. We not only want to treasure and believe the gospel, we also want to share the gospel. Jesus called his disciples to become fishers of men. They follow Jesus and learn from Jesus and serve Jesus. And he taught them to become fishers of men. Eventually, the disciples went to places Jesus had not gone. And they went, pre- they went to those places preaching and teaching the gospel, teaching others how to fish. Eventually, after all these centuries, one of these fishermen caught you, if you're a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And that's because God's word lasts forever. And he sees and calls his people. And now is your duty to follow and learn from Jesus and then serve him and fish for new disciples. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the appointed of the promised divine king. What did he come to do? He came to live, die, 
and rise from the dead for his people. How should we respond? Repent and believe the gospel and live a life of allegiance to the king. In a moment, we'll be able to put what we heard into practice as we participate in the Lord's Supper. So I hope that we all please take this time to confess our sins, repent, and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you've made it very clear that Jesus is our promised divine king. We confess we've not obeyed our king. We confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We ask that you grant us repentance and to increase our faith. May we be satisfied in you. Is anyone here today that does not have a true saving repentance and true saving faith? We ask you, Lord God, to perform your saving work within them. Grant them saving repentance and saving faith, redeeming them for yourself to your glory. Father, we praise you and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us from your wrath. Thank you for transferring us from the domain of darkness in the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus. Now may we take this good news or unbelieving family and friends that they too can be saved and experience the joy of knowing you, knowing you see, that you see them and call them and love them. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.